Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 84, The New Noir. Or Noir's The New Black. <laughs> yeah, uh, so we've talked about noir before. We've talked about film noir. Uh, and so we're taking it to the next level because uh, we have already covered a lot of neo-noir films. So we were like, before we cover any more, which we will be, actually, stay tuned, um, we should talk about what this genre is that was birthed out of the old classic noir uh, films because it's a thing that's still around, but it looks very different than it used to. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the classic noir is kind of something that's birthed out of the studio system in the post uh, post World War Two era in the 1940s, 1950s. Uh, something that kind of grows up around the idea of like the, this dark, dark film. Um, after all, after all, noir means it's either black or dark, right, Jonathan? Yeah, I think it actually is black. There you go, black, black film, um, not black exploitation film or African American <laughs> film, which come uh, on slightly farther down the line, but. Uh, dark film as in dark colors literally dark colors which often comes out Shadows. of the fact that like these were typically b movies not a lot of money went into them or the the directors didn't have a lot to work with when they first got started on uh what eventually became called the film noir genre um so yeah. they had to, to i didn't work realize yeah i didn't realize how many of the classic film noir films came from uh, the Columbia studio, uh, as you can tell, if you're on the Criterion channel, they have a whole collection of them right now. And Columbia yeah. is notorious for being the quote unquote poor studio. Um, and so they were making all of these films, but they're very kind of like boiled down, uh, stories that were pretty easy to produce. And they also, it also coincided with, uh, this kind of big influx of detective novels and stuff. So there was plenty of source material for these filmmakers to draw from. Uh, and the filmmakers did a really good job with them. So they became super popular. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting as this, uh, as this style that is birthed out of necessity, you know, they don't have any money to make the movie. So they, they have to work with darkness and fog and light and special effects and not too many characters and voiceover to get the exposition in. Um, that becomes a style and then people start copying that style and then it becomes bigger and bigger directors copying that style until you get like, even like Blake Edwards off of the success of, um, breakfast at Tiffany's. Um, yeah, he, he went and did experiment in terror, which is a big budget, <laughs> um, noir film, which is a little bit of an oxymoron at that point. Um, and you know, film, film noir isn't even what the genre is called at the time. It's, um, clearly not it has some French origins to it it uh, kind of is birthed out of the um, the French New Wave uh, critics eventually turned filmmakers uh, like Jean-Luc Godard and Francois Truffaut who like to analyze films and start putting the name on this trend and this genre but many of the filmmakers at the time didn't have a name for the genre so once the genre starts becoming self-aware and money starts getting poured into it and color film comes into it and that line between black and white is being for drama and color being for comedy starts to blur as we get into the 60s and 70s we start to move out of what you'd call film 
classic noir, and we start to move into neo-noir. Yeah, and I think another thing that happens around the same time is the collapse of the studio system. So that means that a lot of the uh, things that were implied in the classic noir, because uh, there was a lot of like violence and really kind of shady moral things. That's one of the uh, hallmarks of the genre, but it all had oh, to yeah. be sex, seduction, all that stuff. Yeah, it all, it all had to be implied, though, because they couldn't really show that on the screen. Um, but once we get into the 70s, we start being able to get away with a lot more. And so the, the noir genre gets even darker because we can actually portray how dark it really is. Um, so, yeah, that's the, the typical kind of like cutoff date for neo-noir is 1970. Uh, I think that's debatable because our favorite definition of it is kind of noir with color. So I would put like Vertigo in the heat of the night and Charade in that category, even though those, those were all in the 60s. Um, and yeah, but other than that, like uh, like you said, Alex, the noir genre was never completely clearly defined until like it was over. And by uh, on the same lines, the neo-noir genre is still kind of amorphous. It's not really like films don't always cleanly fit into the neo-noir genre, but often they will be uh, seen that way once they come out and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, they do often often share a lot of characteristics and we'll be talking about that. And here's an interesting quote that I found just on the Wikipedia page for uh, neo-noir. Um, they said, it has also been noted that neo-noir features characters who commit violent crimes, but without the motivations and narrative patterns found in film noir. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting because we're going to talk about yeah. that uh, today some. In classic noir, you usually always know why a character is doing what they're doing. But in more modern noir, the motivations and stuff are much more ambiguous and characters are much more mysterious. Not only are they anti-heroes in the sense that you don't approve of what they're doing, but they're also um, these kind of stoic characters that are really hard to get inside their head and actually understand where they're coming from when they do some of these really gruesome deeds. Uh, so we're going to see that in pretty much all of these films and several other, uh, neo-noirs that we'll probably talk about, but we won't be covering in depth today. Are you going to, um, are, are you talking about drive, Jonathan? I feel like you're talking about drive. I'm talking about drive. I'm talking about all three of these. I want to bring it up in all three of these. LA confidential was very, uh, dark also. And then other, other films that go around or that kind of like feel in the same, era and genres LA Confidential like Seven and Zodiac are also extremely dark and graphic um, and even The Long Goodbye and other films in that uh, closer to that time period like um, uh, Chinatown have some very graphic violent scenes so this just seems to be a uh, a thing that is in this yeah. newer this newer genre of noir yeah. yeah and I'll be interested to see today as we get into it how neo-noir is able to survive outside of the studio system because obviously yeah. film noir basically couldn't I mean um, there's many reasons for it I think one of the biggest ones is that one of the things that always happens in noir is that people get what's coming to them at least in classical noir um, and that's a big, big part of that is the code like um, the Hayes code that we always talk about People, if they were, if somebody did something morally corruptible on camera, 
they had to pay for it by the end of the movie. Nobody could escape without consequences. Um, and once you're outside yeah. of that that situation, um, how do you deal with these dark themes? How dark do you let it get? Um, are you making a moral point? Or are you just using these um, these darker tones for entertainment? Uh, or are you just saying shit's dark? Like what 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 is what what's going on there? But it'll be an interesting one to dive into. Yeah, and of course the other part of modern noir is the color, and um, I think that sort of progressively as neo-noir goes along, we're going to see today especially, is that colors have become much more vibrant and much more intrinsic to uh, the genre. So especially when we're talking about Drive, but I think there are a lot of other films um, that are more recent that use really, really vibrant colors um, to kind of drive the aesthetic, like one that we've already talked about, Old Boy. And then even if you want to put uh, a film in this category that is really, really vibrant colors like John Wick and stuff like that. Um, so that'll be interesting to talk about also because a lot of the um, sort of older neo-noir films as kind of oxymoronic as that sounds didn't have that much of a kind of like really extreme color push. Um, so we'll be getting into all that. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, we will, yeah. Uh, sorry, I was trying not to dive already into the films because first we have to introduce them, Jonathan. What are yes. the films we're talking about today? So we're kicking off with The Long Goodbye from 1973, directed by Robert Altman. I actually just found a list online from the BFI that was like, where to start with neo-noir films? And it said, do not start with The Long Goodbye. But we're doing that. <laughs> um, it was um, filmed by Vilmos Zygmunt. Uh, who is very accomplished. He uh, filmed Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Deer Hunter, among many others. Uh, so the cinematography is great, but understated, uh, I found. Um, so it's also based on a book. All of these are based on a book, I believe, um, by Raymond Chandler, uh, which uh, has some connections. Uh, Raymond Chandler also wrote many books that uh, went that became classic noir films so that's kind of pulling all that into the modern era gives it a, a pretty classic feel certainly and then the next one we'll be talking about is la confidential from 1997 directed by curtis hansen uh it went and won the best supporting actress award for kim bassinger the best adapted screenplay uh it was also nominated for best picture best director best cinematography best set decoration best sound best film editing and best original score. If we haven't mentioned it already on the podcast, Jonathan, Hollywood likes Hollywood. Um, yes, it does. And that definitely shows in this film, which centers very strongly around Hollywood, um, as do most noirs, which which we'll talk about. Uh, and all three of, course, of these actually this is take place in LA, don't they? Basically, all noirs and LA, and most neo noirs. Not all neo noirs, but most, and definitely all three of these do. Um, and this uh, this film is based on the third book in the L.A. Quartet series by James Elroy. And finally, we'll be wrapping up with Drive from 2011, directed by Nicholas Winding Refn. It was nominated for Best Sound Editing and based on a book by James Salas, uh, also called Drive. So let's get into it. Uh, Jason, set us up for The Long Goodbye. The Long Goodbye from 1973 
Philip Marlowe, a private detective, receives an unexpected call from his friend, Terry Lennox, late one night in Los Angeles. Terry wants a lift to Tijuana, and Marlowe obliges. Upon returning, though, Marlowe is questioned, arrested, and questioned again by police. Terry's wife is dead, and they suspect Marlowe just helped the murderer escape. When news is received that Terry committed suicide in Mexico, Marlowe is released. Marlowe is hounded by gangster Marty Augustine, who Terry had just stolen from before disappearing to Mexico and killing himself. Augustine thinks Marlowe has the money, and even if he doesn't, then Marlowe had better get it for him. Meanwhile, Marlowe signs on a new client, Eileen Wade, and her husband, the Hemingway-like author, Roger Wade. Roger has disappeared, and after Marlowe tracks him down at a rehab facility for his alcoholism, he grows close to the married couple, especially to Eileen. But with the pressure from Augustine ever-present, his friend's suicide seeming fishy, and the Wades appearing more and more suspect, the gumshoe detective wades into a web of lies and deception that leave him struggling to stay alive. Will he unravel the mystery, or is this goodbye for Private Eye, Philip Marlowe? All right, so this film bears a very close connection to classical noir, and do you know what that is, Jonathan? Uh, Raymond Chandler? Raymond Chandler, the source material, <laughs> Detective Marlowe. Um, yeah. There's been multiple uh, Detective Marlowe's over the years. Elliot Gould is one of the more famous ones. Probably the most famous one is, of course, Humphrey Bogart, who played the detective multiple times on screen um, in, across several noir films, noir film classics. Um, but now we are not in the 40s and 50s in which – uh, the Raymond Chandler books and world occupied. We are now in the seventies. Um, pots being smoked, topless models, dancers are living next door to Philip Marlowe, uh, in top of like a weird round new agey, uh, apartment building that might've been converted from something else before it was an apartment building. Um, I don't know. It's very strange, very odd, but it's very, Different. We occupy a different moral world at the start of this film than we do at the start of a 1950s Humphrey Bogart film. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, just as far as going into the things that put this in the neo-noir genre, we got to talk about noir tropes to kind of piggyback off of our uh, noir episode. So we have A Private Eye, um, which is kind of interesting. In the 70s, you don't think about private eyes, you know, having a job in the 70s, um, but also a thematic thread uh, that we'll see here that we saw a little bit, although I don't think we really classified it in our noir film, but I feel like the sap character, which is what I'm calling it, the the protagonist who's basically taken advantage of by the other characters uh, is also a pretty common uh, theme throughout noir films, and we'll talk about that a little bit once we get into spoilers at the end of this film. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> Definitely a bit of a setup. Um, and I don't know. Do you feel like the theme song fits into the category of neo-noir? Yeah, I actually, like I was going to say that. It doesn't feel like something that would be used in in classical noir, but it does feel like something that's very stylistic, kind of tied into Robert Altman's auteurism. He's, he's one of the yeah. first directors to kind of really embrace that title um, and be like, yes, I am an auteur. Um, he probably didn't say it like that. Maybe he did. I don't know. I don't know what his voice sounds like. Um, <laughs> but he. Uh, but yeah, this this film has a heap ton of style besides just noir poured into it. 
Yeah, no, I think definitely the song. So there's a song of the long goodbye that plays many times throughout the film in different contexts. Um, and that definitely brings to mind like classic noir films like Casablanca, if you want to put it in that category. Um, with you must remember this uh, as the theme throughout the film. Also, even like in the heat of the night uh, in films like that. So I think that is definitely one of those classifiers that makes it feel like this uh, this noir film, uh, even though it has a very different style than the classic noir. Yeah, yeah. And so you're right. It keeps it moored with the detective and stuff, but it keeps it up to beat. Um, it does kind of feel like Philip Marlowe just woke up like he's a character from the 50s, but he just woke up in the 70s and is kind of like, ah, oh, what's going on now? Yeah, I saw that as as um, in in one review that I saw about this when I was looking it up. Uh, it it says that and it, it totally makes sense. You feel like um, Elliot Gold's character uh, is almost like this P.I. from another age who woke up in the 70s and didn't quite put the pieces together that he's in a different uh, cultural framework and that's why it's kind of so easy for him to get taken advantage of because he feels like he's just kind of out of touch with what's actually going on um, in the world around him and one of Robert Altman's uh, trademark pieces of style I guess is this kind of overlapping dialogue kind of a thing so people are constantly like talking at the same time and you get a big dose of that at the beginning of the film um, with the great scene that sets up Philip Marlowe's character where he goes to the store just to find the brand of cat food that his cat likes. Um, but all the people that he kind of interacts with, it almost feels more like he's talking to himself than actually talking to them as he goes through these interactions. So you kind of get this feeling that he's floating around this world, but almost in his own little, little bubble. Um, interacting with the people but not really kind of being present with them in a weird way does that make sense yeah 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 like he's definitely disconnected a little bit throughout the entire film um which which kind of works because he's definitely the character i mean even as originally intended seems to be uh a bit of an oddball a bit of an outsider but the fact that he's coming from it from a different perspective makes it even a little more interesting like he's just at this complete disconnect the entire time throughout the film um and a lot of the he has a lot of charm he does he does in a weird way like he's definitely a wise guy uh yeah because he's he's not like like we're gonna see in drive he's not this very emotionally stoic character uh, he feels disconnected, but he's still kind of uh, goofy and fun and, um, you know, just kind of like goes through life on his own terms. Uh, again, set up very early in the film with the scene where he gets fingerprinted. Um, he's kind of in this wrong man scenario uh, and he's being interrogated and he doesn't want to give up any answers, mostly because he doesn't have that many. Uh, and he's just like smearing the fingerprint ink all over his face and like acting yeah. like a clown and stuff <laughs> yeah. like that. Yeah, but that's, I mean, if, if this this movie has a very good visual sense of how to um, visually cue at its characters like disconnect and it's his isolation from, not really isolation, because he, he definitely interacts fully with society. He's just kind of on a different different beat. Um, but he's, mm-hmm. he's often shot through through glass um he's often shot in reflection there's a lot of there's a lot of 
really good reflection shots in this this film. There's an entire sequence why while Philip Marlowe's on the beach, while the married couple whose life he stumbled into um, is having a discussion, probably about him. Um, we're shooting at them through the glass, but in the reflection of glass, we're seeing Philip Marlowe um, just kind of wandering on the beach, not doing anything much in particular. Um, but that's only one example of all of the kind of mirrored reflected images that we see in this, in this, this story. Of course, like the entire plot is driven by this idea of like, you know, where's the money, what's going on, trying to solve these, these accumulating mysteries. Yeah. But it feels like the interesting part of the story is trying to figure out Philip Marlowe as a person and how he fits into, yeah, how he fits into everything. Yeah. Like what um, makes him tick? Yeah. And a character study isn't necessarily something that you'd see in classical noir. That's definitely something that's closer to a, a neo-noir. That's an auteur who's put his spin on on his on the the classical genre and made it his own in a way. Yeah. But there are times that this film almost gets to like this ensemble piece place because it's almost developed all of its characters too well to the point where they're all so interesting uh, that Philip Marlowe kind of pales in comparison. You know, you've got the um, the shrink who's like really creepy. You've got the mob boss who's uh, very flamboyant and out there. Uh, you've got the hippie girls across from his apartment. You've got even just the... Um, the crossing guard who lets all the cars by and does impersonations of old film stars and stuff like that. Like all these characters are so interesting and vibrant that it really makes this world feel alive in an otherwise kind of uh, really drab situation. And especially following Philip Marlowe, who, um, you know, is, is not, not quite to that level of personality. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's definitely an Altman touch. Like he, he's very good at, showing uh almost like a tableau of his character like of his character as a full tapestry no one character feels terribly more important than the others other than we might spend more time with one but every time we come across a character they feel full and rounded um and alive he tends to shoot everything in very long um long takes and a lot of camera movement. He tends to use zoom lenses to get through space quickly and connect things that might seem distant together. Um, there's a yeah. lot of several instances of that, that cinematography in this picture alone. So you, you mentioned the, the camera movement and reading, um, going to one of our favorite books that we plug all the time, the AFI Conversations. Um, Altman was talking about the way that he filmed this film in particular, and I think several of his other films, but uh, basically he does one of the things that you are always told not to do, which is unmotivated camera movement. Basically, he has the camera moving often, and he shoots the, the scene from two different camera angles usually so that he can cut them together, but the camera is just kind of like floating around, it's just kind of like reframing, um, all the time. So you're kind of kept on your toes, but it's not necessarily saying something. And in that sense, the camera almost floats through the story in the same way that Philip Marlowe does. A lot of times he is just kind of being dragged along in the sense that he's a PI. He's trying to figure out what's happening, but more often than not, I feel like things are happening to him. Uh, people are coming to him, 
uh, which sent him to this person and then they send him somewhere else and he's just kind of like bouncing all over the place and you don't really figure out like what his place is in the whole thing until the very end when there's one line that basically sums it up. Yeah, no, the way he moves the camera is very similar to how the the human eye kind of tends to wander on its own throughout a conversation that you might be in or a situation that you might be in. Um, and Altman kind of takes advantage of it. Not all the time, because if he did it all the time, then you'd always know it was a cue for something, but he takes right. advantage of it occasionally to fit in something that might be thematic or a recurring motif or, um, relevant to a character or relevant to the plot. Um, which, which opens up his filmmaking to a lot of interesting and unique opportunities. Um, and there are definitely a lot of strong motifs in this film. Uh, and I don't even know if they necessarily have a thematic significance. Some of them certainly do. But a lot of them certainly just feel like they're setting the mood, setting the tone, and setting like this world that we're in. Um, the song that's always playing and like different versions of it too, right? Like, yeah, but it's always really melancholy, always very sad, but different sad versions, <laughs> um, <laughs> right. which is interesting. It makes it feel like it's just a natural part of the world that just permeates all of it, whether we like it to or not. It's just there. It's on the radio. Um, it's in the soundtrack. Uh, there's somebody playing it at a party. It. Yeah. It's, it's just everywhere. Um, and of course, there's funner things, which are like just Philip Marlowe being able to light a match on just about everything. Uh, <laughs> yes. It's actually yeah. kind of intense. Like, I don't know how you light a match off of glass, but I swear he does it. Yeah. Um, and I almost the smoking is almost a noir trope. Uh, because as we get to more modern films like Drive, there's almost no smoking in Drive just because that is more of the modern uh, context. But that constant lighting up of cigarettes is all is another thing that just kind of subconsciously connects this back with old noir where uh, the smoke in the darkness and the shadows uh, all kind of created this atmosphere that you think of when you think back to old noir films. Yeah, yeah. Do you, I don't know if I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but I realized one day I was watching an old movie and I was trying to figure out why everybody was smoking um, even though like nobody I saw in my day to day life was smoking and obviously like it was a different time. But then I realized after I started to get into cinematography and the visual style of, of filmmaking that smoke is like a really nice effect on screen sometimes. And, oh yeah. uh, sometimes it's nice just to have that smoke light up the screen. And when you're working with uh, a low budget, like classic noir was, an easy way to add visual effect was just to put in some smoke, whether it be somebody smoking or a smoke machine in the room. Um, it also helps make your actors look nicer, especially if you're working with older grizzled people like Humphrey Bogart. Just right. throwing that out there. Um, diffuse that light, y'all. <laughs> uh, yeah, and also to some extent, everyone smoked back then. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, right. Yeah, so I do want to get into a little bit of the ending of this film. So here's your spoiler warning uh, if you want to go see this film. Definitely do it. It's very good and very interesting. Um, and then come back in a couple minutes. But uh, basically, at the end, we find out that the guy who uh, he helped out at the beginning and sent him on this big, huge mess um, because he's trying to prove him innocent. Um, and I think that that part of his character, the loyalty 
part is the the biggest part that is ends up being his tragic flaw. And I think that Altman does a really good job of setting that up again with the cat scene. Like in the very first scene, we set up he is loyal to a fault. You know, he's going to go get the right cat food for his cat. And so when he has his uh, criminal friend come to him and he gets him out of the country, that is that act of loyalty right there is what kind of sets this whole thing in motion. And then when he finds him not dead at the end, uh, and he says that one line, I can't remember the exact words, but he basically says, you were just the right sap to, uh, to take the fall for me or whatever. And you realize, Oh, that's who Philip Marlowe is. He is, uh, the guy who's too trusting in this world of really terrible people who just want their money or, uh, whatever are like drunks. Like everyone has this big flaw and Philip Marlowe's only flaw is that he was too loyal and, uh, so eventually he, I mean, the ending, the very ending of the film where he shoots him is really the only reason that Roger, uh, Robert Altman made the film. Um, but, you know, it kind of all leads up to that. We, we kind of go through this following, following him the whole time, building up sympathy with him to realize that, oh, he was just the sap the whole time. Yeah, yeah. And it's a nice reveal um, because maybe we didn't quite get that about philip marlowe for the whole film because you don't want to you don't you don't want to think that about your protagonist yeah 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 and he's i mean he he is given um i mean certainly we we are with him a lot of the film we see him do a lot of things that could be considered good um but also it's so mysterious and a lot of the motivations are so withheld and restrained that he could have his own angle on the entire thing um Mm -hmm. And we don't know exactly what deals were worked out between him and his friend. Uh, we don't see. Yeah, all we have of no it. history of them before the film starts. Yeah, yeah. So we don't we don't know all of it. We see him putting in this effort, but we don't know why. Maybe he's just after the money himself, and he's lying. We don't quite know. We want to believe that. Um, so at the end, like it's it's kind of bittersweet, right? Like we're we're confirmed in believing that he is. Um, in his essence, a good man, even though I mean he kind of does. Anyway, um, but also that he's a sap and that he, he was yeah. taken for a fool. So positives and negatives. He's a complex character who gets revealed in the end, which yeah. makes for a nice punch at the end of a character study film. Yeah, and I think just that element of it kind of connects it back to one of the films that we covered in our noir episode, which is Double Indemnity, which is all about the sap. But you know that he's a sap from the beginning. Uh, in this one, it's it's a journey of discovery for the audience to kind of figure out that, oh, wow, everyone was just taking advantage of him. So the last thing that I do want to say about this film, uh, especially going into the next two and just, you know, so we called our noir episode Detectives, Dames and Deception. And as far as the dames aspect of the noir genre, because they usually are a very big part of the noir genre um, in this one. There is not a woman character who is kind of like the downfall of uh, Philip Marlowe. Um, In some sense, he's like interacting with uh, the wife who was friends with them and they were all like cheating on each other. Um, And in some sense, the wife who died kind of kicks the whole thing off. But there's no like woman who seduces him or manipulates him or anything like that, which I think is a really it's it's not like a big blaring 
aspect of this film, but I think it's interesting when we put it in context of the noir genre, there's usually a woman that's either motivating someone's actions or manipulating someone's actions, and that element is not really a big part of this film. Yeah, there's no real film fatale in this. Mm -mm. There's kind of a film fatale, but not not really. They, I thought yeah, they, they never really have a relationship. The, I thought they were going to do more with the um, apartment next door. Um, full of, they were literally just background. <laughs> but they were literally just background, which, I mean, if your goal is to paint a vibrant world, mission accomplished. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it's it's an interesting interesting aspect of this one. But again, because we're uh, no longer moored to uh, the the studio system and what's expected of a detective story, they wouldn't call it a film noir at the time, but a detective story, um, you don't necessarily need one. You could, you could play it a different way. Um, although it certainly leaves this film in the lurches follow as far as like the Bechdel test goes. And, um, right. And, and from that angle, uh, it, it doesn't live up to that, but as far as, as, as a film noir or neo-noir, a twist on what a noir originally was intended but updated for a newer purpose, I think the changes it made to get at what it was driving at in this character study worked really well. Yeah. Um, and the last little tidbit, I lied, one more thing, um, is uh, a thing about neo-noir and noir uh, sometimes in general that we have to acknowledge is nose bandages and there's nose bandages in this film alex oh yeah there is isn't there <laughs> what's a noir so without a nose bandage there's a there's a moment where the the crazy mob boss cracks a bottle across his mistress's face and uh breaks her nose um which comes up again in chinatown comes up again in la confidential uh it probably comes up in drive I don't remember one specifically, um, but they're nose bandages. I don't know. It's a noir thing. Chinatown? Chinatown's classic nose bandage. Classic no nose bandage. <laughs> we should have done a nose bandage episode, Jonathan. That's what, we, that's what we've learned. It's not too late. That's what we've learned today <laughs> so far. All oh, right. Man. Well, with that, let's, uh, let's mosey on over to our next film set in the wide world of Los Angeles, yet again, L.A. Confidential. L.A. Confidential from 1997. In 1950s Los Angeles, three police officers navigate a complicated and corrupt world. The first, Ed Exley, is the son of a legendary LAPD detective and determined to live up to his father's legend. He's a political lawyer with a firm idea of justice who refuses to bend to the often violent and unethical tactics of the police force. The second is Bud White, a plainclothes officer with a penchant for beating up perps, especially women beaters. While fully embracing the brutal style of the force, often being called a mindless thug himself, White is just as interested in justice as Exley is, even though the two grow to dislike each other. The last is Jack Vincennes, a narcotics detective who makes a killing selling out pot-smoking celebrities to a tabloid and lives a star-studded life as a police consultant on the TV show Badge of Honor. Having lost sight of why he became a cop in the first place, Vincennes is mostly interested in his own personal gain. A series of police controversies, murders, rapes, and other crimes interweave the journeys of these three policemen as they all stumble upon a cover-up that could ruin the entire department. But can three cops with vastly different personalities and worldviews manage to save the LAPD from itself? All right, Jonathan, so... 
the big thing about this one is that it's a neo-noir that's a film noir. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's literally... It's literally a period piece. Yeah, it's it's an homage to film noir on pretty much every level. So we can start with the noir tropes, but literally they just tried to put all the noir tropes in it. Um, they have corrupt cops. They start off with a voiceover. They have... Uh, all the dames who are literally made to look like all the dames from the film noir films. Uh, literally. So, yeah, literally. So everything about this movie is kind of trying to build a noir uh, while also playing uh, noir dress up. Literally and figuratively. Yeah, man. Uh, it, and it's interesting. And we, of course, we have to talk about this. We don't want to spend too much time on it because it'll just set our heads spinning but obviously, Hollywood is a land of duplicity, a land of make-believe. Um, some would say a land of lies, which is certainly true, but it's also a land of storytelling um, and make-believe and fantasy. Film mm-hmm. noirs often play with that theme. And this is a period piece masquerading as a film noir with characters in it masquerading as film noir characters some of which are masquerading as the hollywood celebrities who once played those film noir characters so it kind of spirals in on itself in like this thematic motif that doesn't if you keep following the spiral you really won't get anywhere the fact is that there's just a spiral (laughs) and that's that's the point is that it just loops in on itself Although I do find it interesting, Jonathan, this doesn't hit all of the film noir motifs. Um, for instance, there's no real private eye. I mean, there's kind of there's kind of Danny DeVito, but he's like a, more of like a sleazy tabloid journalist. He he investigates, but not. I no. think I think the uh, the cops and the detectives are supposed to kind of fill that role, um, which was a big aspect of the film that I want to connect to this film a lot, which is uh, Touch of Evil, again, from our noir episode. I'm plugging our noir episode hard uh, this time. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, Touch of Evil was all about the corrupt cops and the, uh, you know, when do we plant evidence? We have to get uh, these people to do, uh, we have to get to the bad guys. Um, Do we do that using the right means or the wrong means? and so that's that's a big part of the story going on here. And I think that that's this film is very uh, upfront about its themes, not in the way that like we're going to see in Drive, where everything is really kind of um, under the surface. LA, L.A. Confidential is about, you know, cops who are trying to do the right thing, cops who are obviously not trying to do the right thing, cops who are trying to not do the right thing from the right motives, cops who are trying to not do the right thing from the wrong motives, cops who have changes of heart. And they talk about that all very uh, upfront. Um, And then also you have uh, the bad guys who, you know, the prostitutes who you know would like to get out of that the prostitutes who are the the pimps who are running the prostitutes like there's so many layers to all of this stuff but it's it's very theme driven and it's not hiding that it's theme driven oh yeah 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 yeah. and it is it is a very complicated plot um it's pretty long it's almost two and a half hours so and they fit a lot of stuff into it very very long film and it is um maybe the it's got to be the first one we've we've tried on the podcast it's the first like triple header um it's very much set up around three cops none of which are entirely the protagonist until maybe the very end um yeah which which makes it interesting 
And I personally think they may might have needed like another 30 minutes to accurately cover a triple header, but um, but they certainly make a pretty good swing for the fences with it. Yeah, yeah. And and again, this one kind of like dips in and out of like ensemble at the beginnings. We have so many characters going on and then we really like figure out, oh yeah, these three guys are the ones that we're really focusing on. And then that gets narrowed down to two by the end. Um, so, but, but there's a, like a whirlwind of characters going on around them, uh, that again are all very interesting. You know, we have the, uh, as we've been kind of alluding to, it's probably was in the summary, um, you know, this ring of prostitution of girls that look like, uh, classic film stars, which is just kind of an interesting premise. And then we have, um, it also works for the, exactly for the audience that would enjoy this type of film. Exactly. Yeah. The people who enjoy yeah. this type of film are the people obsessed with classic Hollywood, who are the people who would like these stars, who would probably have a crush on those stars. So, again, it spirals. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess another thing about the themes um, that uh, you know is just kind of part of this big thematic tapestry is, it's is all the motives are very clear. Uh, and again, we kind of touched on motives before, but as part of film noir, every, you know what everyone is doing. And that's what goes into this being clear about themes is, uh, you know, literally the cops will say, are you willing to plant evidence to get a conviction? And the other cop will say, no, I'm not. And so we're like, OK, I know why he's going to do what he what he's doing. Or when he acts against that, we realize, OK, he's kind of gone off the rails. And that's one of the big things is pretty much everyone in this movie ends up becoming the thing that they hate. Either they were that thing at the beginning and they're just kind of uh, living into it, or they were that thing at the beginning and they have to realize that they uh, need to change, or they start off with really good intentions and just go downhill uh, until they realize that they need to to turn it around again. Yeah, and okay, we, we've got to talk about this because I find this fascinating, the way in which these characters are set up. Um, okay. Because they all have they all have values, right? Um, yeah. And it's like a triple Venn diagram of what overlaps. <laughs> um, for instance, there's Guy Pierce's character who uh, will play the politics game and has a moral code. There's um, and by moral code, I mean like he won't plant evidence. Um, and then there's and he won't kill and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but he's the one that that goes downhill. <laughs> Yeah, and then there's Russell Crowe's character who uh, also has a very similar, like he's, I would say he's definitely and has the interest of justice very similar to Guy Pierce's character, but his tactics are very different. Um, right. His his tact, he's willing to to plant evidence, he's willing to beat the crap out of people, all sorts of stuff. Um, they, I mean, they explicitly make his, his one of his character descriptors. He's fond of beating up women beaters. Um, yeah. Which is a cool character idea. It feels a little pandering-ish. It's a little heavy-handed. It's a little yeah, heavy-handed, especially... Like, okay, we know he has a backstory, and then they make you wait like an hour to actually get the backstory, and so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They all have they all have interesting backstories that kind of come out. Um, Later. What, yeah, uh, Rolo Tomasi and stuff, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's Kevin Spacey's character, um, who is willing to play the political game in the same way that Guy Pierce's character is and is morally corrupt in the same way that, um, that, uh, what's his face? Russell Crowe's character Russell, is yeah. in many ways. He's like 
the worst of the three characters throughout the entire film, um, which is maybe a little bit appropriate for a Kevin Spacey character. Um, <laughs> but he does have a change of heart at some point. He does. He does. And in a very codish, like, uh, I feel like it's not a big spoiler if we give this away. Um, in a very, like, Hollywood too many twists in esque <laughs> era way, the, the worst of the three people who are driving this movie ends up dying. So yeah, it, so in a way, like he pays for on screen his his complete bankruptcy of of character. Um, whereas no, this the other one definitely two, the other two suffer, but two different amounts. Yeah, yeah, and I think that this one almost the most out of these three kind of fits into that code era. Um, you know, uh, justice is served on all sides, kind of a thing. Um, there's a little bit of like this moral ambiguity where um, Guy Pierce takes all the credit for um, the terrible things that he did and kind of agrees to sweep it all under the uh, under the rug. Um, but you also get the sense that he's just doing that so that he can actually set things right once he has the the power to do that. Um, but that's kind of like the only real moral ambigu- ambiguity at the end of the at the end of the movie. But even just the fact of kind of upholding this codish. Um, uh, come up and stealing uh, is makes it feel like a film noir. So it all kind of goes back. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, the way it ends, um, we do have a film fatale in this movie. Unlike L- unlike uh, I almost said unlike L.A. Confidential, which is the movie we're currently <laughs> talking about. It's a it's a rough day for names and titles in my head. Um, that's how meta this film is. <laughs> yeah, unlike the long goodbye. Right. is what I meant to say. And definitely in this film... Um, okay, I'd be actually very curious to hear what you think about this, Jonathan, because I actually felt like the character that Kim Bassinger was playing wasn't very strong, like wasn't very present. Like she was just kind of there as like a lure the entire time. And then there's like one scene or one like sequence where she really does something and that's it. Um, otherwise, she's just kind of there and people are like pursuing her, but she doesn't... She doesn't seem to have much of a character built around her until maybe the very end. And even then very lightly, because there's not much time to develop that character. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I mean, it's kind of hinted at that she's being used to seduce uh, some of the cops, but you don't really see that too much when you're actually like in a scene with her. Um, the most puzzling scene in this whole movie is the, to me is the one where, uh, Guy Pierce actually hooks up with her because I felt that that yeah, was kind no, of yeah no that's the scene where I like unmotivated on table. all sides yeah, yeah. because at some to, at some point Guy Pierce um, compromises his moral values he kills uh, one of the bad guys while he's running away and unarmed um, and then he takes the praise for it and then he realizes like oh hey that was the wrong guy and then he feels super bad and has this change of heart and he's like I'm gonna do this by the book now and then he shows up at Kim Bassinger's place and. Uh, almost forces himself on her. It's really kind of unclear what's happening because you get the sense that she was told to hook up with him to get compromising photos. Um, but also like he he is the only one that has a moral compass, and he he didn't seem like he had any like he was prepared to do this, and she was not enticing him at all. She just kind of like was there. Um, yeah, no, she was there is maybe her entire character. Yeah. Which, yeah. which I feel like, and I don't feel like it's 
I feel like Kim Bassinger does a lot with the role, as limited as it is. Um, yeah, she has some really nice moments with Russell Crowe, I think. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But that one with Guy Pierce was really baffling. Yeah, it was weird. I mean, it even didn't quite make sense why he was he was doing it. Like, I don't, that was I don't know. My biggest... It left me. It left me very, very frustrated. It, it felt like a. Um, it felt like a studio note, and I don't. It was a plot like mover, is what it was, because it was like that has to happen so that Russell Crowe gets mad at Guy Pierce, um, and oh, then yeah. Russell Crowe gets mad at Guy Pierce, and then Guy Pierce finally gets him to calm down, and then they never bring it up again. It's like, shouldn't there be at least one line where Guy Pierce is like, "Hey, man, sorry, I was mad at you," uh, but no, they just kind of drop it, and then everyone's cool, and then they're best friends. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. It's interesting. Um, and there's also a few scenes that I wasn't super fond of where Russell Crowe was just like, oh, everyone thinks I'm dumb. I'm not dumb. Or like, I want to be smart or something like that. And yeah, it, was it a felt little... like a piece of like delayed character development um, that I didn't realize they were driving at until halfway through the halfway through the film when uh, I was like, oh, they're, they're building up that he's not smart. And that's like part of his insecurity. Um, yeah, which, yeah, that did kind of come out of nowhere a little bit. Um, and it, it, like they were playing to this stereotype where he's, he's the dumb muscle. Um, yeah, but he's supposed also to be like he the was muscle bound thug with no brain, but also he was aware, like usually the muscle bound thug with no brain doesn't know that he's the, the, the muscle thug with no brain. Um, and Russell Crowe is like, uh, I they don't know that I can figure stuff out or something like that. And then he figures something out and he's super happy with himself. Um, I thought it was going to be one of these things where he's like, I, I just, I can't figure out this case. So I need Guy Pierce to help me because he's the smart one, but they end up just figuring it out on their own. And then they join up at the end. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of, there, there's some awkward character developments points and that's, that's kind of what I was driving at when I said I felt like this, um, this film might be a little overstuffed in terms of how much it's trying to handle with so many characters is that it didn't mm -hmm. quite have the time to set all of this up properly and really get it going. I did have the thought that this would make a brilliant, brilliant, like, either like an HBO series or a streaming series, um, something with like eight to 10 episodes where they can really develop yeah. all these characters and get inside the world. I mean, the world is really yeah. pretty and they and do a lot of good convoluted. job. The, yeah. They do a lot of really good job. Uh, I'm sorry. That made no grammatical sense. Uh, <laughs> they do a great job of, um, making the world really really pretty showing the theaters in the background making it clear that they're in the glitz and glamour of hollywood but also the underbelly of la at the same time um that could have been played out really well in an elongated series um the character development you're right they could have made the plot a little more convoluted by stretching it out um but also I mean, it already was very it, convoluted for two and a half hours yeah i think right now though what it's suffering from isn't from being too complicated or too or too uncomplicated i think it's just being compressed and it needs yeah. time to breathe and time to stretch out and time most importantly for all of the character developments to really hit and fire on pistons um and make sense and make not just have the logical point on screen like this movie does but have it 
built into the point where it, it gets into the minds of the audience subtly so that they just feel it. And it feels right when the characters do things down the line yeah. rather than, Oh, why did they do that? And you have to go read like an article on Reddit about why such and such <laughs> character did such and such a thing because they were motivated by this thing that happened for half a frame back in episode two of blah, 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 blah. Um, but yeah, essentially I'm pitching LA confidential as an HBO <laughs> series. If you're out there listening, hit me up. You probably aren't on the rights. Just do it. Whatever. Just do the series. Okay, Alex. So uh, a little bit ago at the beginning of that rant, um, you mentioned the aesthetics. So does this movie does this movie look like a film noir to you? Because this no. is an aspect that I thought it was lacking a lot. No, it doesn't look at all like a film noir. It looks oh, looks quite a bit like a film noir or a neo-noir, I meant, except... Uh, and, and and by that I mean like a lot of color, but most of it happens during the day. And there are no shadows except for the very last, like the last climax scene. But most of it's like just way too well lit the whole time. Yeah, yeah. And I felt like this is definitely a plot that would have benefited a lot from like a heavy shadow mot- motif. Yeah, duplicity. One of my favorite things not quite looking like how they should. Yeah. My favorite use of of black in this film is when we see Kim Bassinger's character for the first time and she walks in in this huge like almost like a nun's habit kind of thing, but like this huge black robe. And it's so dark that you it's almost just this black blob and it's just kind of this um, really mysterious kind of thing. And we have to like shift the camera around it to see her face. Uh, But I thought that was a really cool way to set up a very mysterious character. Although if she had been one of the noir women who was like very manipulative, like I actually kind of thought that's what she was going to be because of that introduction, because yeah, that seems right? much more sinister than what yeah. her character ended up being, yeah, which was, was the so damsel innocent. in distress. Like her character like had to be, it felt like they were going for an incredibly likable character when it, I think the plot would have benefited from an incredibly unlikable character. Mm-hmm. Not an And then they almost set one. her up as that, but, but it wasn't. Yeah. Um, I guess this is one thing that you mentioned in your notes, Alex, that uh, we can bring up, which is the action scenes. And I think we've been mentioning that neo-noir films tend to be much more violent than classic noir films, Um, to some extent because of the code, but also I think because action films are more of a thing or they have, uh, I guess they've crossed over. I think they've cross-pollinated with the neo-noir genre a little bit. Um, And you felt like the action kind of, almost drew it out of the noir genre a little bit a little bit it it started to feel certainly at points like it was an action film with uh period piece and noir trappings on it which might just be symptomatic of the late 90s early 2000s era of hollywood filmmaking um in fact it probably that was probably exactly it i probably already found the answer (laughs) (laughs) i think there are a lot of films from the late 90s early 2000s that I kind of mentally lumped together with LA Confidential um, that weren't quite as action-y, but much more noir-y, which is like uh, Seven or Zodiac um, and The Usual Suspects, stuff like that um, almost felt more, almost feel more noir. I mean, they definitely fall in the neo-noir genre, but I don't remember any of those films being quite as action-y. Not really. And they were definitely more 
more dark. Like Seven and Zodiac are very aesthetically yeah. dark films. And a big a big part of and and noir has always um, skewed closer to like the thriller category of movies rather yeah, than the action core category of movies, mostly because it relies on tension and mystery. Um, and building up this questioning in the audience, not necessarily uh, fighting all the time, although you can certainly work a good fight into a noir film. Um, it wasn't very common, partially because it was a mystery detective story, but also a big reason why was you just didn't have the money for it. Like when when you're first making these cheap b-budget movies at uh at columbia you didn't have the money or the special effects to do um yeah. massive action fight scenes you had to show stuff in interesting unique ways um the limitation that's not that's, to say it's completely absent yeah like i just watched um the big heat and there's definitely a shootout at the end of that oh, yeah. there's some yeah, yeah, incredible yeah. makeup uh but there's but there's like stuff one like that yeah, right? there's right. like one. There's like not, that like, is the climax. Yeah, it's not wall to wall action, which is um, definitely. And this film isn't either necessarily. It's definitely sprinkled throughout, but it's a two and a half hour film, and it's not like John Wick where we're just like shooting people the whole time. Um, so and and we've been like doing a lot of criticism on this film, which is not to say that this is a bad film or a bad neo noir film. This is in like the top 250 movies uh, highest rated on IMDb. The um, it's in like a list of best cinematography. Um, it is a very good film. It's just that um, I don't know. I don't know what we're saying about it. Maybe that it hasn't aged quite as well as when yeah, it I was don't think released. It aged quite as well. I think definitely it is very. And this is weird because it's a period piece paying homage to an old genre that's assigned to a specific era of our timeline, but it's like. It's like it's too symbolic of 1997 movie making to really yeah, age well. Yeah, it felt too well. clean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It felt it felt too too uh, forcibly glossy in a way that like even even like the studio era at its height never got to where like it was trying to not only protect like make a pretty movie, but it was also trying to protect like the actor's reputations. Like the actors only play good guys or so, so and yeah. so and so. So it felt like it, it took, it didn't, while it was certainly dark, it felt like some of the characters could have gotten darker and better motivated to push it really firmly into the, into being like super prime quality neo-noir, which again, isn't to say it's a bad movie. It's actually a quite enjoyable movie to watch. It's a fun watch. Um, the plot unravels really nicely. Yeah, I think I think for me, it was mostly a symptom of uh, expectations versus reality. Uh, like what I yeah. was expecting, I was like, "Oh, this is interesting." A neo noir film from nineteen ninety seven. Um, it's kind of got a period piece vibe going on. It's got this strong L A orange tint to everything. I like color. This will be fun. Um, and then you go and watch it, and it's not really what I thought it was going to be, which is fine. Um, it yeah. was, it was still quite enjoyable. It was just trying to be something different. And by the time I had adjusted my expectations accordingly, it was already over. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So before we move off of this film, though, I think there is a direct reference to Touch of Evil in this movie. Alex, did you pick up on it? Is it all the evidence planning? No, that's that's kind of like a thematic reference. But I think there's like a direct visual reference, which is the oil rig in the background of the big climax scene. Um, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. always well lit. It's just kind of like in the background. But for a film that's all about corrupt cops and evidence planting to have a climax scene with the oil rig very prominently lit in the background, I was like, they've got to be doing a little nod there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe it. All right, well, with that, let's move on to Drive. Jason, set us up. Drive from 2011. A wheelman who is simply called Driver is quite simply the best at what he does. Drive. During the day, he's a stunt driver and a mechanic at his friend Shannon's auto shop, but during the night, he's the best getaway driver in Los Angeles. Although quiet and distant, Driver grows close to his neighbor and her young son, starting a budding relationship with Irene. Meanwhile, Shannon, who functions as his manager for both stunt and getaway driving, convinces the West Coast mobsters, Rose and Nino, to invest in a race car for Driver to race. When Irene's husband, Standard, gets out of jail, everything starts to spin out of control. Standard owes a gangster called Cook an absurd amount of protection money, so when Irene and her son are threatened as well, Driver steps in to save the day. Driver and Standard are forced to commit a robbery, but after the job goes horribly wrong, Driver is left holding the bag in a bundle of loose ends. Was the job a setup? Are Irene and her son safe? What lengths will Driver go in order to save the ones he cares about? And what characteristics will come to the surface as he pushes himself farther and farther? All right, Alex, I think this is probably the most different of the films. Um, this, I mean, it's definitely neo-noir. Uh, depending on what you type into Google, this may or may not be the first film that shows up when you Google neo-noir. Um, but it it's more of a departure from the classical noir tropes and structure. So I think the main connection to noir is... Uh, the fact that we have a little bit of like a mystery, like not even that much of a mystery, uh, but a we have story. this. Yeah, we have an emotionally stoic uh, kind of anti-hero character, um, which a lot of the old detectives kind of fell into. But he's not a detective. Um, and uh, for most of the film, kind of like all sense of uh, the law is absent. It's just kind of like this almost more of a Wild West kind of street justice type of thing yeah a little bit it's definitely got that vibe to it of course there are a lot of um stylistic choices that put it very close to noir and definitely close yes. to neo-noir and it's we're gonna have dark. to talk about the style because that's the big that's the big draw of this film and i feel like it's the big legacy of this film honestly yeah yeah i know a lot of people come back to this film or have been coming back to it recently and been a little disappointed um possibly because they thought it was deeper than it was um, and I would I would put this film into a category of films um, kind of like and I've heard this argument made before about this uh, different film uh, Yojimbo um, where maybe there's not a whole lot of deep text happening b- below the surface but it functions kind of poetically almost like a haiku it gives you enough to think about and then let you create the rest if you're willing um, yeah but it's certainly not uh, too much of a deep thinker in and of itself, but it is still... And the other thing that uh, makes this hard to uh, kind of walk away from with a really like kind of intellectually 
satisfying uh, takeaway is the fact that it's so mysterious. This is when we're talking about neo-noir with um, characters with undefined motivations. This is kind of the epitome of that uh, driver. So first of all, we got to mention the fact that our protagonist has no name. Uh, he's called driver in the credits. He's never referred to directly. Uh, and, um, that kind of is, uh, that, that, I mean, just that alone sets up the fact that this is a very enigmatic character. He's kind of a ghost. Uh, the whole time during the film, you get the sense that he just goes through life very aloofly again, similar to Philip Marlowe, but Philip Marlowe had a lot more personality and interaction with people. Driver, um, is almost kind of just watching the world go by. And the one time that he, uh, kind of sticks his neck out and gets a little bit emotionally involved with somebody, uh, literally his whole life comes crashing down around him, whatever of it there is. Cause we don't really get that much of, I mean, backstory. We're just kind of dropped into his story. We understand that he, uh, drives criminals and he also drives, uh, for movies. And those two things kind of, uh, are what propel him into this big mess once he, uh, meets this woman and becomes attracted to her in the most, subtle form of attraction possible yeah yeah which no, is a smile <laughs> yep just a mysterious smile and you don't know what's behind it um yeah i mean he does so he's definitely doing something else but we don't know exactly what um obviously he's getting involved with his his friend brian cranston um and the the his racing um his, like his, a racket. Yeah, it's well, he's got different jobs going on, right? Like obviously he's an escape driver for criminals. Yeah. That's a big one. He's a stunt driver and he works as a mechanic. Um but he's also trying to become a race car driver. Um his entire Which backstory Which leads to the question, does he ever sleep? No. <laughs> clearly <laughs> not. He's clearly an insomniac. Um there's something a little superhuman about him. Um Yeah. Especially at the end. Um yeah, he's he's definitely a guy who his backstory is never really explained. You can kind of infer what it might be. Um, but yeah, there's definitely there's one point in this film where somebody is talking where he's talking on the phone with somebody, the mobster, after things have kind of gone to complete crap. Um, and they're talking about the story of the scorpion of the frog, uh, which if you don't know, um, the, the scorpion needed to get across the river. The frog offered to take him, um, assuming that he promised not to sting him. The scorpion promised. And then halfway across the, um, the river, the scorpion stings the frog. The frog cries out in betrayal saying, but you will drown too. And the scorpion says, it's just in my nature. And yeah. I feel like that, that definitely is like the whole basis of the film. I mean, yeah. if, and if you, if you don't believe me, um, that's kind of as deep thematically as it gets. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of just exploring that, like the nature of a person versus what they do, what they say, what they're holding back. Um, I have a lot of fun in trying to infer what's going on with this guy because none of it is answered over the course of the film. Uh, he's just kind of left as a mystery and as an entertaining person to watch. Um, but he definitely acts as the scorpion. 
in this instance. Like, and yeah. there's multiple characters who you could call the scorpion and multiple characters who you could call the frog. Um, but I mean, even just the fact that uh, looking at it from a costuming perspective, like he's got two jackets, um, one just a denim jacket, one a bomber with uh, like a glossy silver bomber with a gold scorpion on the back. Often prominently displayed. <laughs> prominently displayed. Uh, he's got two. He's got two different sides to him, um, and you're never entirely sure what you're going to get. Yeah. Um, and and there are two films that this film definitely brings to mind. I know there is an explicit connection between the writer and one, which is Les Samurai, uh, and also one that we've talked about on the film before, which is Taxi Driver. Um, and they both kind of feature that kind of emotionally aloof character that is really hard to get inside their head. I feel like, though, with Taxi Driver, at least, um, you get... A, a bigger picture of like all of the cultural influences that are kind of going into him and getting all uh, garbled up and then they all kind of come spewing out in the big dramatic climax. And we talked about that film before, so you can go check out that episode um, because that that element of it, though, is lacking from this. I feel like he is just kind of like playing by his own rules. He's not really influenced by anybody except maybe the girl um, just because he wants to uh, protect her. Um but, you know, other than that, he's just like this really, again, enigmatic kind of mysterious ghost who just kind of like sails into the movie and uh, kind of gets mixed up in all this stuff and then sails off out of it again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, part of part of the interesting part for this movie is that or, or, or what's interesting to me about this movie is this internal question that he's wrestling with about whether or not to get involved. Like he's obviously holding half of himself back for most of the movie. Um, and by the time he's decided to get involved, it's too late. Um, and things, things have gone wrong. Uh, and, and you get the sense that maybe that's happened to him in the past. Um, and that's why he's so, so withdrawn. Like, where's he going next? Is this going to repeat itself wherever he goes? Um, and obviously, obviously, if nothing else, the, the the style of this film, the color, the neon at night, the reflections in the glass and the mirrors of the car, um, yeah. the smooth, smooth music, um, the slick cinematography, the smooth camera movements all make it just so easy to watch. Yeah. And the, uh, the rear view mirror of the car... Um like creates this uh i i don't know what to call it you know what i'm talking about alex it's not an eye light but you know in noir when they do like a slash of light across the eyes yeah um, yeah, yeah i couldn't find a term for it but i think everyone knows what i'm kind of talking about and the the rear mirror of a car is perfect for creating a motivated uh example of that because usually those are just kind of like coming out of nowhere but here we can do that and it actually works it makes sense in the world um and so that's that's one kind of at least aesthetic tie to noir. Um, and then, like I said, this film has a huge, like, uh, really prominent color cast. It's got the um, the orange and cyan uh, thing going on because we have so many night scenes that we can kind of skew them uh, blue. And then we use the kind of orange of the streetlights and stuff like that to light up the people. Um, but even in the apartment, uh, everything is so well art directed and stuff like that. Um, and, 
yeah. So aesthetically, this is is it's a gorgeous film. Um, and the other thing that we got to talk about as far as neo noir is the violence because this one is maybe I don't I don't know if it's like the most violent uh, kind of on a quantitative level, but I would probably say it's the most violent of the three on a qualitative level, just like how graphic and gruesome all of the violence in this movie is. Yeah, no, I mean, it gets, uh, it, it's, it's delayed, it's built up to, but once it's there, it is brutal. Yeah, so the, the first act of violence is that Driver literally stomps a guy's head to pieces um, in an elevator. Uh, which comes out of nowhere, and it's so strong that you're just like, okay. Wait, is that and first? Is that before? I, I think that's the first thing he does before before he goes beats up the guy at the strip club. Um, because I'm pretty sure he beats up the guy at the strip yeah, club because, first. Okay, you might be right, but I thought that I thought they sent that guy to him, and then he went and searched searched him out. Uh, but I could be wrong. Um, anyway, oh, and and. Alex, I know that what the, what you enjoyed about this film is that a very little of the violence is actually committed by guns. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a hammer. It's great. There's a hammer. It's great. They're all very, um, very, very unique, very interesting, very flavorful and meaningful ways that, that the violence is committed rather than just blindly shooting at people. Yeah. Speaking of the hammer, do you think that is a um, direct yeah, reference no, the to hammer. Old Boy? It feels like it, even if it's not. <laughs> it yeah, might be. I, it literally comes out of nowhere. It's not motivated. He just walks into the strip club with a hammer and uses it. Yeah, I mean, why not? He's, I mean, it's something that's easily available. Most people probably have one if they put, if they have an apartment and they have their own furniture. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, I just looked it up. Um, he beats the crap out of the guy at the... Uh, at the strip club and then he comes back to the apartment and there's the the hitman there and he he beats a crap or he kills him yeah 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 and the, the interesting thing about about that scene uh which i i noticed that you you paid attention to also is the fact that <laughs> she didn't know that he had a gun like she didn't know that there were probably people after her yeah and he just kills this guy in the elevator like he's some kind of maniac. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. from her perspective, that scene is very odd. Yeah, I didn't realize that if, at all the first time I watched this movie. But yeah, no, that is that. Yeah, we understand what's going on completely, but she is just completely lost. She knows her husband's dead. Um, the guy she almost cheated on him with, probably, um, has now has now brutally murdered this other guy in front of her um it's all very very confusing so yeah no it, her reaction makes perfect sense so i i do want to kind of bring up the vagities of their relationship because uh they start hanging out a lot together while her husband is in jail um apparently they don't give you very much notice when someone's about to get out of jail mm -hmm. uh but it it's very vague like how deep the relationship actually goes um physically you know it's it's almost like that lost in translation thing like is it just kind of a, a in over their heads emotionally kind of thing or is there actually a physical dimension to the relationship there's only one shot that 
I can think of that might imply that it was physical, which is when they're kind of driving around at night and she puts his hand on his on the gear. Um, yeah. And it kind of like fades out, uh, which could be a, an implication, but it could not. It could have just been kind of a platonic thing that um, was just a, carried carried a little too far and he probably should have minded his own business um yeah it felt it felt kind of like an emotional form of cheating kind of like we saw last time with lost in translation um and it it is kept very obscured i mean everything in this movie is pretty obscured as far as the characters go um and and i one of the interviews that will be coming out on on social soon is uh uh nicholas ruffin kind of says that he wanted it to feel like this situation that's that's very dark that's happening but have a very dreamlike quality to it and i think yeah, you kind of yeah. get that especially oh, yeah. after the especially after the first watching but um there are several times like look, the elevator scene again is kind of like a really good example of a lot of the things that go into this film uh, because right before he stomps the guy's face in uh he kisses um the girl i've totally forgot her uh, irene um in slow motion and there's like the song swells and it's like, okay, so there's this really, um, dramatic, romantic, um, drawn out moment. And then it goes straight into like this really quick fight and then kind of like a stomp the face in kind of thing, which is just really drastic contrast. And that one little scene kind of encapsulates the duality and, uh, kind of extremes of the different parts of this film yeah yeah no it definitely feels that way it's um i don't know i can't think of a lot of other films that have the the same kind of i mean obviously there's other dreamlike films out there but this kind of smooth it was all a dream aspect of this film is definitely pretty unique and the one who feels like uh if if you would say a character in this film dreamed it who would you say it was because i definitely have an answer for that yeah, that that is a good question. Probably either Irene or Benicio. Yeah, I would say Irene, and maybe even Benicio. Like that's what I was thinking earlier. Like maybe this is his remembrance of um, this interesting dude that he he met, and the couple things that he actually knew about the situation, everything yeah. that got stuck in in between. Honestly, if you want to like way over psychoanalyze it, uh, you could say that it's Benicio's remembrance of an affair that his mom had while his dad was in prison. Yeah, yeah, and he's trying to <laughs> he's trying to reconcile what happened and make it okay or make it yeah. I mean, anyway, this is definitely this definitely feels very um, romantic, very romanticized, romanticized, yeah, very very stylized in that way. Um, which is definitely what it's going for. Um, it's an yeah. interesting, slick story. It's a kind of storytelling that like we we don't really get very often anymore. Either like you get pure entertainment, um, or you get uh, or or you get something that's striving to be super super meaningful, but nothing that's just kind of like thematic, like this is just kind of poetic, nice stirs up some some avenues for thinking if you'd like to but also enjoyable otherwise uh yeah it's a kind of movie making that's kind of also faded since the studio system was here right and i believe that this was um this is an indie film isn't it this is not a huge oh, it's, studio it's film 
It's yeah. got to be. There's no, there's no way a, a studio with any cut say over this would have allowed. Yeah, I think I remember a lot of um, uh, talk about like they kind of just guerrilla filmed a lot of the night driving stuff in L.A. I mean, obviously they had a budget; they were able to like shoot stunt uh, car chases and stuff like that. But oh yeah, it's uh, indie. On the most part, it's pretty small. I'll tell, um, I'll, tell, I'll tell you right now the production companies involved in it, and tell me if you know any of them. Old Films, okay. Old Lot, Odd Lot Entertainment, Mark Platt Productions, Motel Movies, and Film District. Nope. Uh, film District it sounds, sounds like a, familiar. a film blog. And you know why? Yeah. Because it's an indie distributor. Yeah. Um, and I remember <laughs> that uh, when the film started. In 2014. I remember when the film started seeing like all those five studios and I was like, that's a lot of people that it took to actually get this thing done. Oh, do you uh, know? Do you know what else Film District distributed? What else? Old Boy, but not, but not, but not, not the good one. Oh, the uh, the Spike Lee one. Okay, okay, that makes sense too. Um, so yeah, and I think that the we got to talk about kind of the legacy of the aesthetic of this film. And obviously this isn't the first film to do this kind of like neon uh, dark thing, but that definitely seems to be uh, Nicholas Winding Refn's style. He, I mean, he's made uh, Neon Demon, Only God Forgives, uh, and several other films that kind of have this really like amped up color uh, palette. Um Often starring Ryan Gosling. Another film that feels similar, although I haven't seen it, starring Ryan Gosling is uh, Place Beyond the Pines. Um, yep, yep, love that and, one. But there are uh, a lot of other films that feel similar aesthetically that I feel like have been influenced by this film. So stuff like um, uh, Looper, Nightcrawler. I always think about this in connection with Nightcrawler. Um, even like Blade Runner 2049. uh and again, like I said, this isn't the first film to do this kind of thing because I feel like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang has a similar style. I feel like the original Blade Runner even, uh, which you could argue is tech noir, but we're going to kind of put it in the same category here. So it's it's kind of coming in a tradition of these very amped up, colorful noir films, uh, but I think it almost revitalized it to a point where a lot of people are doing this, uh, a very similar type of thing. Uh, even uh, Velvet Buzzsaw, which just dropped on Netflix, kind of feels like it's in the same vein. Yeah, no, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> have you seen Velvet Buzzsaw, Jonathan? I haven't watched it yet, but just from the trailer, I assume. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> Sorry, I was just remembering watching Velvet Buzzsaw. Um, it definitely looks like a trip. Yeah, no, it look, it's a bit of a trip, but it definitely, I mean, it definitely tries to fall in that category. Um, yeah. Although the, the merits or lack thereof of Velvet, Velvet Buzzsaw is a discussion for a different time. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're not yeah. actually covering that. All right, well, let's move on and talk about kind of the new noir genre as a whole, um, if we can, because, you know, again, it's not a super it's, well-defined genre. Yeah, it's not very well-defined. Um I have a list uh, for anyone above our, our $2 patrons on Patreon. Uh, if you look at my notes, I made a list of all the films that we've covered on the podcast so far. There's that a lot. Could fall, that could fall in the neo-noir genre. Um, there's about 23 of them, ranging from uh, like The Dark Knight to um, 
taxi driver. Um, I was sitting alone God. in my office <laughs> and thinking to myself, I'm Batman. Then she walked in and I asked her, hey, you want to know my secret identity? Classic noir. Um, but it's it's kind of spun off some, uh, some kind of f- fun homages. So we talked about L.A. Confidential, but... If we want to talk about like um, a, uh, an homage film to noir that has a bit of a lighter touch, uh, you can look at Brick, which is definitely uh, neo-noir, but it's kind of set in a high school setting, um, which is fun. It's it's different, but it tries to hit all of those notes of noir and neo-noir and stuff like that. Um so this is definitely a genre that's sort of taken on a life of its own. None of the films that are in the neo-noir genre ever feel like a direct one-to-one aesthetically or thematically with classic noir, but you can always see kind of where their legacy traces back in that direction. Yeah, yeah, no, they're all they're all touched. They're so maybe the thing that defines neo-noir has to be that it's a spin on noir. Because they all launch from the same point, but they all land in different places, if that makes sense. I mean, even the three we looked at today could all be called neo-noir, but aren't necessarily super similar films other than they relate back to the noir. Right, right. And that was kind of the idea in picking these three and uh, just trying to see this really big scope because neo-noir does have a really uh, wide scope. Um, and again, as we've kind of already talked about, uh, they usually all have a root in the Hollywood setting. Um, all three of these did, there are many more Hollywood just kind of seems to be, uh, the place for these films. I don't know if it's cause in the classic noir films, it was just easier to set it in the place that you're going to be filming it. So you don't have to make excuses for why the setting is different. Um, but it, it has just kind of become this unspoken rule that noir happens in L.A. Yeah, yeah, no, it's just become inexorably linked, which is ironic because everybody always thinks of L.A. as the place of sunshine and no rainy days and light. Um, yeah. And yet they've, they've chose to, to capture this darker side of L.A. And yes, there is like one or two months where it just like drizzles like every day or every other day here. Um in the winter and it's really annoying um but that's a personal problem but it's interesting because the idea of where noir is set is inherently duplicitous uh because it's contrary to the typical thought of la right like yeah it is the under it is the other face of la and that kind of duplicity has become like a key touchstone of noir and by extension neo-noir um, and we kind of see that echo into the physical techniques of neo-noir too. All three of the films today, Jonathan, have a large reflection motif. All three. Yeah, they do. And I was, I was shocked to see that in all three. Um, and I think maybe it's, it works because it's glass and it feels modern or it works well with color better than it works with uh, black and white. Um, I don't know exactly what it is, but it, it, it just has become this thing that you see a lot in neo-noir films. Um, maybe because it's, it's almost neo- kind of, it's almost an ironic kind of, uh, device because obviously glass is transparent and 
nothing in neo-noir films is transparent. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. But it does it does show you yourself. It does let you look kind of back on yourself in a little bit different way, maybe a little bit of a distorted way. So I think there are some things you could kind of read into it. But other, I mean, aside from those, it's just a really good cinematic technique for making very visually interesting images that give you something to think about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like the idea that maybe all of the reflections that end up built into this kind of mean that neo-noir is a as a genre is kind of just a study of film noir if that makes sense because it has to twist everything in film noir to get to where it is it's inherently studying it the reflections are of the detectives and criminals and private investigators and film fatales and damsels in distress that um that are archetypes of the film noir genre that are now being twisted and re-examined. And in the twisting, you learn more about the original. Like it's inescapable to watch a neo-noir film and not think of film noir. Yeah. And it's not to say they don't have anything to say for themselves. It's just that they can't avoid almost just taking what a film noir has already said and just saying more about it or contradicting it because yeah in that genre and especially anyone who's familiar with it is going to like i was doing this week being like oh yeah it's kind of like what happened in double indemnity with that character or hey this is has a lot of similarities to touch of evil and stuff like that it's a genre of comparisons and that's not to say that it can't it can't exceed that and become uh, meaningful as a movie on its own, which it certainly can and at cert- uh, certainly does quite often. Um, it's just that it will forever have the burden of being, or you could look at it as an advantage because you have such a palette of tools, techniques, and characters yeah. to work from, um, to work from, uh, of being so closely connected to film noir. Yeah, yeah, it's not not a bad starting place, um, and it's it's a very full genre already. Um, all right, Alex. Well, let's talk about what we're going to be talking about next time, which is not a big leap. Sometimes we kind of do a pull a one eighty when we do our episodes back to back, but this time it's not. We got a little bit of an overlap. Yeah, this works pretty well. Uh, next week we're going to be talking about revenge. Um, bum, one bum, of the bum. top. Uh, one of the top motivators in film history um I would yeah, put it up noir there. or otherwise or otherwise yeah just like stories in general or life revenge is it was a big really motivator. hard for me to not put a western on this list because that's a big theme in westerns also yeah, that's like most westerns like you shot somebody so i'm gonna shoot you and then somebody's gonna shoot me for shooting you and so on yeah. and so forth um but yeah yeah they are uh it's a big motivation and there's a lot of movies that kind of stick out as being much more about revenge than others giving us the opportunity to really take a deep dive and study one of the major motivators of maybe like a quarter of all characters ever created so (laughs) um without further ado the films we are going to talk about next week are Lady Snowblood from 1973 currently available on the criteria newly revived the Revenant right. Criterion Channel. <laughs> it is back. Uh, was that a reference to last week? I don't know. Or next week? Next yes, week. Yes, next week. <laughs> Sorry. 
Uh, it is a reference to next week. Um, we will also be covering Memento from 2000. So there will be more Nolan on the podcast. So Jonathan will be in a very good mood. Um, it also falls in the neo-noir category. It which is does. Good. It definitely does. Uh, it's for some reason, I don't quite understand. It is currently free on IMDb. Um, yeah, IMDb has recently started a uh, free-to-watch with ads uh kind of deal so if you want to watch memento you can go on imdb i think you just have to sign up for an account and then you'll be able to watch uh memento with ads on it yep yep just send us your social security number and we'll hook you up (laughs) um and then i'm kidding don't do that uh and then finally uh the revenant of course hence why i made that joke a second ago uh from 2015 so three different um Three different movies from three yeah. very different settings and filmmakers and styles, but all very closely connected in what drives their uh, their characters. It'll give us a good opportunity not only to talk about filmmaking, but probably also the pros and cons of, um, of revenge. I mean, for instance, <laughs> Jonathan, I have a question for you. Yes, Alex? Is revenge a dish best served hot or cold? Ooh, uh, revenge is a dish best served cold. Interesting take. I prefer it nuked <laughs> in the microwave the day after, but um, that is what leftover it is. revenge. Leftover revenge. There's always more revenge, Jonathan. That's part of it. There's always, always more, more revenge. Um. Yeah, so, and then before we go, we'll just kind of plug our donation sites again. We have a coffee account if you would like to make a one-time donation, and we also have a Patreon account. A quick note about the coffee account. Since we have started doing um, uh, commentary tracks for our $10 patrons on Patreon, um, check out Alex's uh, most recent one on Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, If you would like to just... Get the last month's um, commentary track. You can drop us uh, three coffees on coffee, which is nine dollars, which is a little bit less than the uh, the ten dollar monthly on Patreon. And we'll send yeah. you whatever the latest uh, commentary track is. Yeah. But of course, um, so if that's that easier for you, a month on Patreon, you do get more than just the commentary track. Yeah, you, you get, get all the other, the other things. Included. So it's not like we're we're short shifting people who are who are getting the commentary track through Patreon. You're actually getting more if you go through Patreon. Um, yeah. but if you just want a one-off track, we will give it to you at a slightly discounted rate. Yeah. Yeah. And that way you don't have to feel committed to doing that every month. Um, and if you want to check out our $5 tier, which is our bonus podcast where we talk about things new and old, our latest episode that's out right now is about Shazam. So if you saw that recently and you want Shazam. to hear our thoughts about it, you can go check that out on Patreon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guess what? That's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And I'm at the Blue Jay, 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. But are you going to see Endgame? Oh no, I'm way behind. I won't even know what's going on. I didn't even see the last uh the what what was the Infinity War? Infinity yeah. War. I'll be way behind. I know Spider-Man died. 
Well, so, kind of. Like a lot of people died, but not no really. No one's ever really gone. That's what I learned from the Star Wars trailer. <laughs> God, the fucking Star Wars trailer. See, I think I feel about Marvel the way you feel about Star Wars, Alex. That might be fair. 